My name is Cody Hunter. Uh, I am honored to get to hang with you guys this morning and teach through uh, this little passage in Philippians. We are continuing our study of uh, the book of Philippians or the epistle, the letter of Philippians. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. So if you want to look that up, it's also going to be chilling up here. Um, And my intro this morning is me uh, being honest with you guys about my week and my prep for this. Um, I, like all week, just didn't want to do this, just didn't want to teach this, like straight up. Um, And I know that that's like a common preacher shtick thing to get up here and go, oh, this uh, this really convicted me. Oh, it's for me first. This was for me and then I get to give it to you. And I didn't even want to do that. Like, I just literally wanted to call Josh and be like, welcome back from paternity. You're teaching. Okay, like, you, you do this. I don't want to. Um, I feel too soft to preach this. Um, I saw on the schedule, like, months ago when, when I was, like, scheduled to preach that I was going to be in this passage um, and that it was going to be on suffering and Paul talking about suffering. And I, I thought, oh, that's okay, cool. Like I have been through some hard stuff, some hard seasons in my life. My family recently has been through some really hard stuff. So I, I'll have some ammo. I'll have some experience to be preaching out of. And, um, and then you look at it and I got into it and Paul is pretty overtly undeniably talking about suffering that comes from preaching the name of Jesus. Suffering that comes directly from being aligned with Jesus and who he is. Not just your run-of-the-mill, hey, we live in a broken world, we're outside of the garden, suffering, pain that we all go through. This is like Jesus-related stuff. And I, I don't have a lot of that. Just straight up, I don't. I wish I had more. Um, I don't like getting up here and teaching something that feels to me more like theoretical out of the text. Like, here's what Paul is talking about. Paul, the sufferer, here's what he's talking about. I don't like doing that. I would much rather like preach to you something I've lived in, felt, experienced in my bones. And it's just not really me this week. And so I fought it and didn't like it. And in the midst of that, I I feel like Paul still was, was teaching me this week. Paul is preparing the Philippians for suffering, and he wants to prepare me and prepare us at, for that prospect. Suffering is going to show up in some degree. Um, so if you feel anything like that this morning, like, hey, mm, suffering for Jesus, hard to relate to. I can list out five people I know live in Africa or other side of the world who suffer for Jesus, but not me. Like, if you feel that, you're in very good company this morning. But I still think Paul has something for us. Um, so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Um, it's going to be up here. Perfect. Does someone want to Read this or read it from your Bible um, out loud so we can all hear it. You're not just listening to me talk for 30 minutes. Any volunteers? It'd be great. Thank you.
Awesome. Thank you so much. That's it. It's our passage. Um, if you're a note taker, outliner, here's where we're going with it. Three points that Paul wants to make. One, Paul says, live in a worthy manner. Two, as you do this, suffering is granted. Three, we don't do this alone, striving. We do this striving side by side. Okay, so that's where we're going with it. Live in a worthy manner. Suffering is granted. We do it striving side by side. So this first point, Paul says, live in a worthy manner. This is what he says in the passage. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. More literally, it reads like this. It says, conduct yourselves as citizens worthy of the good news of the Messiah. It's more literally what it reads like. Conduct yourselves as citizens worthy of the good news of the Messiah. This isn't the last time Paul's gonna take up this, this citizenship language. In chapter three coming up, he's gonna go, hey, our, our citizenship is in heaven It's there, and from heaven, we await a savior who's coming back. So he's got this theme of citizenship that he's working in the letter to the Philippians, and that makes sense knowing what we know about Philippi so far. If you remember Josh's intro to the whole letter, Philippi is this Roman colony in Greece founded most likely, most predominantly by veteran Roman soldiers, So citizenship within this culture to this people, hugely important pillar. We are citizens of the Roman Empire. It's this shared story, shared identity, shared value system that everybody, this disparate group of people all rally around and go, no, this is us. This is our identity. It binds them together and it unifies the people, right? That's citizenship. And Paul, to this people, he goes, hey, Philippian church, citizens, let me speak your language a little bit here. You are citizens of a new kingdom. It's not built with human hands. It is actually built by God himself. It is not of this world. It's actually unseen right now in the heavenly places. King Jesus is there, seated at the right hand. It's King Jesus, not Caesar. Your loyalty is to him, not to Caesar. He's seated there at the right hand of God, patiently waiting for the day where he will bring that kingdom back down to earth materially. You and I will see him. We will rule with him in a renewed earth, unified with heaven forever. That's the citizenship. You're a citizen of that kingdom. And to Paul, for this citizenship, what defines being a worthy citizen of this new kingdom? What should their lives be worthy of, does he say? Does he say, hey, live worthy of the honor of Messiah? Hey, live, live yourself, live your lives in such a way that you are worthy of the expectations of Messiah. No, he says, Conduct yourselves as citizens worthy of the gospel, the good news of the Messiah. The good news. 
So to Paul, the defining piece, the pillar of their citizenship that they need to remember and orient everything around is simple news. So the good news to Paul that they need to remember is this. Messiah has come like God promised he would for centuries, for millennia in the past. God promised he has come. His name, Jesus of Nazareth. He walked among us. He came. He was crucified. He was buried. He was raised to life. And guess what? You can have life in his name and be brought into the family of God. That's the news. You have been made worthy in him and brought in. That's all you need to remember. Now, knowing that, live in a manner worthy of it. Live it out. Live like that is the truest thing about you. Let it inform every thought of your mind, every word on your tongue, every action of your hand. And Paul goes even further. He actually goes, hey, let this be so true of you that even if I do not get to come see you, I'm still hearing about it. I would love to get unsolicited reports of how much you guys are living this out in Philippi. I would love that. So Paul's first encouragement to the Philippian church Hey, you guys are worthy citizens of a new imperishable kingdom by the grace of Jesus. Now live like those worthy citizens in Philippi, the city that has your earthly citizenship. Live it out. And Paul, as he says this to them, he knows something. He knows from his own lived experience from the life of Jesus that as they truly live into this new kingdom life, persecution is coming. Just a brutal fact, brutal reality. They are going to suffer just like Paul. He knows it. And he wants to prepare them for this. And the way he talks about it is insane. Check this out. Verse 29. Second point. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul says this crazy thing right here. He says, check it, for it has been granted to you. Granted. Granted right here is this Greek word, ekariste, from the Greek word charis, which means grace. So literally, you have been graced with, shown favor, blessed to experience this. I want us to feel the weight of Paul's flow right here. I think he's doing it so intentionally. He's teeing it up for them and he like pulls the rug out from under them in a certain way. He goes, hey, look guys, you have been blessed to not only believe in Jesus, to be found in him as great as that is, but also you're like, what else? What else, Paul? Like, what's the bonus we get? Is it to, to be rich with his riches, to walk in his power? What is it? He goes, no, 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 no. That you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Hard pass on that. Like, <laughs> that, that's not the, the bonus 
benefits. I get hired by a corporation, give me the benefits. That's not what I'm, that's not what I'm looking for with Jesus. But Paul talks like it's this bonus, this icing on the cake of being in Jesus. And where does Paul get it? How does Paul think like this? And I think it's none other than from Jesus' mouth himself. The Beatitudes, Matthew 5. Jesus, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Not blessed are you even though this happens, blessed are you when this happens. Paul goes, hey, look at me. You know my story. You see every town I go to, I'm facing opposition from either the Jews or the Romans. Very often, both of them, I am beaten, I'm jailed, I'm slandered, I'm lied about. And over and over, Paul stays in it somehow. He just keeps on getting up. He's not surprised by it. He's not phased by it. He doesn't pull away and badmouth everybody who's doing it. He just moves right on. He picks up and he keeps preaching or he just goes right on to the next town who's going to welcome him. Why? How is he able to do that? Well, we know from where we've been in the letter already that for Paul to live is Christ. He is living with eyes absolutely locked on to the day of Christ, the day where he knows he is going to see him face to face. And he wants to do that surrounded by innumerable masses of people that are also there standing before Christ because he preached this gospel. His eyes are on Christ. And what does Paul see? When he looks at Jesus, when he looks at the life of Jesus, eyes fixed right there, what does he see? He sees a savior who lived like the suffering that he endured was peripheral at best, secondary, not that important compared to what was primary. Road to Emmaus. The risen Jesus shows up to a couple of his followers and they're, they're going along the, Jesus has been crucified, all their hopes and dreams dashed, the whole Messiah thing, sounded great, didn't work out, he was killed by the Romans, we're going home, we're done. And Jesus shows up to them, they don't realize it's him and they're telling him about it. They're like, hey, are you like the only one in the area who doesn't know these things that have happened in Jerusalem? And, and he looks at them and I think very tenderly, he goes, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus, looking back into the scriptures, seeing the whole mosaic of pieces in the Old Testament about the Messiah and who he would be and what he would do, sees this one happily ignored piece. In the prophet Isaiah, there's this character that's called the servant of the Lord, servant of Yahweh, and he keeps showing up over and over in Isaiah in these big extended poems called the servant songs. 
And he's exactly who you would expect him to be. He's the dude. He's the Messiah. He is the promised snake crusher from Genesis 3, the redeemer of humanity, the guy who's in the line of Judah, the son of David raised up to be full of the spirit, speaking the words of God, bringing redemption, bringing justice. He's doing all those things. He's doing exactly what you would expect him to do. And then in Isaiah 53, the fourth and final servant song, we get this. It says, behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be high, lifted up, and shall be exalted. And you're like, yes, duh. Of course, the king, Messiah. Of course, he's going to be lifted up. Next part. As many were appalled at you, his appearance was so mangled beyond anything resembling a human and his form beyond that of the children of men. What? No. (laughs) That's not Messiah. That's, no. Isaiah 53 goes on, and here's a snapshot of what the servant is revealed to be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, pierced, crushed, wounded for transgressions not his own, oppressed, afflicted, judged, and yet silent, making no defense for himself. And then finally, dead and buried. That's the servant. It's his last song. And then the song takes this turn and all of a sudden the servant out of nowhere is back and it gives us this. It says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hands. Get this, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What does he see? What's he looking at? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with multitudes because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Was it not necessary that Messiah should suffer these things and then enter his glory? I don't want to paint a false picture of suffering like it's some sort of like joyous thing. It's this inherent good that we just need to learn to to really love, you know? Like we're not supposed to seek it out for it in and of itself. Like, you know, if you're not just like, you know, if you just get to the point where you can learn to love it, you know, it hurts so good kind of a thing. It's not like that. It's not pleasant. It's not good. Jesus did not want to do this. In the garden, Father, I am distressed unto death sweating blood. If there is any other way, let's do that. Take this cup, please. 
from me. Why does he stay in that moment? Why does he take the cup? Isaiah 53 seems to say that Jesus somehow sees through the suffering, through it, to the salvation that is on the other side. Jesus, leaving that garden, arrested, falsely accused and condemned, cross, put on his back, beaten, carries it up a hill, laid down, nailed to the tree, lifted up and over that. Why does he take it all? Because Jesus can see through to this moment where a Roman centurion is going to come to know him because Paul and Silas in Philippi are preaching his name in a jail cell. And the whole Philippian church that is going to come out of that moment, you and me, this entire room, every other body of believers around here, throughout the world, all throughout history, who will all come to know God through his obedience. His eyes are lock set on that. And in the midst of his anguish, get this, he is satisfied by it. It's the love of Jesus for his father and for you and me that outweighs the gravity of his suffering. Father, not what I will, your will be done. If it is your will that I endure what Paul is going to call this light momentary affliction so that you and I, Father, can enjoy an eternity of life with new sons and daughters, brothers and sisters brought into the family of God, so be it. I'll take it. I will do it. Paul goes, Philippian church, believers, citizens of this kingdom, As you live out this reality, suffering is going to come like it did for your Savior. And when it does, you need to know that you are blessed in it, favored. But not only that, third point, remember, you don't do this alone. Last, we are striving side by side in this. Verse 27 and 28, Paul goes, hey, live this out in such a way that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul of all people knows that it takes help and unity to endure suffering. It's the reason he always takes a partner on his journeys, Silas. Barnabas, Timothy, his boys. He's always got at least one person rolling with him into new cities. Jesus, like we already mentioned, darkest night of the soul, Gethsemane. What does he do? Hey, you guys stay here. I'm going to go do this by myself. No, he doesn't. He goes, Peter, James, John, come with me. Stay a little further away. Watch and pray. I need you here with me in this. Acts 4 and 5, insane story. So these same disciples, these same disciples who a moment after that are about to flee the garden as soon as somebody shows up to oppose Jesus, they flee, see this same Jesus killed and raised up, filled with the Spirit. They're so emboldened that they are preaching him in the town square to the point where they get arrested. Same disciples. And what do they do? 
they gather together all the believers in Jerusalem and they pray this. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Get this, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, that vision piece, right? We are suffering, we are being beaten, we're being cast out, we don't care, we see what is happening. Healings, signs and wonders, whole households coming to know the name of Jesus. God, please give us more boldness so we can endure for more of that vision. So they get together, they pray for this, and they head back out, I love it. Just right back out, let's keep doing it. Going preaching in the square, they're arrested again, right back into it, brought before the council this time. The council says this to them. Here's the story. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Check this out. This should sound familiar. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they stopped preaching Jesus because they were so afraid. No, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Messiah is Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, side by side, unified in spirit and mind, in love with Jesus, eyes fixed on him, encouraging one another to endure suffering. That's how it's done. As we end our time here and move into some reflection and communion, like I said earlier, um, I feel JV at this. Uh, I really do. Second string JV at best, not even starting. Um, I don't have a whole rap sheet notches on my belt of moments. And I'm like, yeah, I suffered for Jesus. I said Jesus' name, I really suffered for it. I don't have that. And honestly, the way I used to talk about that was I, don't, I haven't suffered for Jesus and that's his grace on my life. Like, praise God. But Paul seems to think that the grace is to suffer. So it's like reshaping how I'm thinking and talking about this in the first place. And Um, I think Paul, like the Philippians, is trying to prepare us for how to think about and endure suffering for his name. So it's had me wondering all week, here, Hillsborough Village, 2023, what could it look like? These are gonna be our communion uh, reflection points. What could it look like for us to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel in our context today. And do it in such a way that it calls attention to itself. It's not a subtle thing. Maybe attention we don't necessarily want, per se. Are there spaces of my life where I'm too complacent, too content, too comfortable? Maybe work, certain social circles, friend dynamics, with my family, and I just don't like, it's good. I don't want to rock the boat by talking about Jesus at all and be weird. I don't want to do that. Or there's spaces where I'm complacent there and might, might need to explore that. 
And how can we grow in encouraging one another in this direction here as a family at Hillsborough Village? I don't think Paul is going, hey guys, now go find places to suffer. Suffering's your focus. Go find places to suffer. That's not it. His focus is live this out so much that you're not surprised that suffering shows up because it's so overtly spilling over the edge of you guys. I think that's it for us. How do we grow and encourage each other in such a way we're talking about Jesus? He's always on our lips, always the reason behind what we do, what we do with our hands. People know. And then out of this second point, it's not even really a question to discuss. It is, it's a prayer. God, would you prepare our hearts to suffer as we do this? Whether it's coming or not, in whatever measure it is. God, let my love for you and my love for my neighbor that I see out, the desire to to see healing and salvation break out. Jesus going, hey, if you have eyes to see it, the harvest is plentiful. Laborers are few. God, give me such love for you and such love for them that suffering that comes as a byproduct of me speaking your word, no big deal. Like, sure, easy cost, easy cost to say yes to God. Let that be my heart. And I straight up don't think this exists naturally in in me at all, in any capacity naturally. It is absolutely spirit wrought, eyes fixed on Jesus. I'm compelled. So God, like work this in us. Prepare us for it. And when that comes, man, we lean into the fact that right there in that space, we are unified with Jesus, the suffering servant. So yeah, that's my prayer. Um, I hope me walking through this this week was helpful to you and I hope it stirs some stuff in you. We're gonna do communion um, together. Before we do that, we're gonna chat through some of this because this is one of those ones that's like, do we talk about it? Do we circle up? Do we not? And I think it's worth it. I think it is worth it to circle up. So we're going to do uh, groups of three and four. If you're not about this, you're introvert like I am, feel free to tap out. That's totally, totally good. But I would encourage you, like try to grab three to four, five people around you, chat about what could this look like? 2023. He's preaching to Philippi. What does Nashville 2023 Hillsborough Village look like? And then God, give us the strength. Give us the love for you that pushes us and compels us in that direction. So Go ahead and circle up and uh, take communion whenever you guys are ready on your time after you've discussed. And then we're going to sing one more song.